Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 18th, 2022, and this is show number 906. Well, Steve and I both got the new iPhone 14 Pros, and I'm not going to do any kind of exhaustive review or even gush about the dynamic island, at least not this week, but I did want to tell you something funny. One of the first things I did was start comparing the iPhone 14 Pro's cameras to the iPhone 13 Pro's cameras. I've heard a lot of people complain about the 3X camera on the 13 Pro, so I thought it might be fun to compare and see whether there was any difference between the two phones. I put a tiny container of Morton's popcorn salt on a counter a little ways away, and I took the same photo on both phones at 3X to see if there was a difference. I was very shocked to see that the 14 Pro's 3X camera produced an image with very jagged edges on the text of the popcorn salt. The 13 Pro looked nice and smooth, just like you would expect text to be on an image. I posted the two photos for people to compare them, both in our Slack and on Twitter. No one else was noticing this problem with the 14 Pro's 3X camera, at least no one who was responding to me. The next day, I was on a walk chatting with Pat Dangler about this very problem when I had an epiphany. As soon as I got home, I grabbed the salt shaker and I looked at it under the magnifier function of the iPhone. Would you believe the edges of the letters actually have the jagged edges? (laughs) I played back something in my head that Stephen Getz had said when I first showed him these two images. He said he thought the iPhone 13 Pro's 3X image looked soft. And he was exactly right. The 13 Pro image is soft enough that you can't see the jagged lettering, but the 14 Pro showed the jagged edges because it's so darn sharp. Anyway, I thought that was funny. I thought I had discovered some big flaw in the camera and I was going to have to wait for it to be fixed. And it was just that it was doing its job even better than I expected. In the past few episodes of Programming by Stealth, Bart has been walking us through worked examples to demonstrate how to roll up a web app using Webpack. These worked examples have been contrived to show how to perform the task. It's been very useful, but like I said, they're contrived examples, not real world. So this week on Chit Chat Across the Pond, in a tidbit episode of PBS, Bart walks us through how he tried using the skills he's been teaching us to roll up his this-ti.me web app. This is a real-world test of the technologies that he's been teaching us, and it allowed him to describe to us some of the pitfalls he fell into, though they were few and far between. It also gave him a chance to exercise the Webpack documentation, which happily turned out to be very, very good. Now, there's no heavy lifting in this episode and no work to do to follow along. Instead, sit back and relax while you listen to Bart give his advice on how to approach his this task in your own code. Of course, there are fabulous tutorial show notes at pbs.bartificer.net, and you can subscribe to Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice. In the words of the most awesome Lori Gill, the best thing about OS updates is everything old is new again. With iOS updates, you probably don't have to buy anything new to get the new hotness. They make your phone feel brand new again iOS 16 is filled with many small delights, and I've been enjoying following all of the tips people are posting. I wanted to throw in a few of my early favorites that are maybe a little bit more off the beaten path, but that delight me as much as the bigger, splashier updates. Let's start with the teeniest and yet awesome enhancement in iOS 16. You can now have the itty-bitty battery icon in the upper right of your screen show the battery percentage. I know, life-changing, right? Simply open up Settings, Battery, and toggle on the Battery Percentage switch. 
I'm especially happy they put this in right now because my battery on my phone and my watch, for that matter, are dropping like a stone. I presume this will get better over time, as it always does with the new OS, but for now, being able to see that percentage is extremely useful. One of my favorite things in iOS is the enhancements Apple has made to dictation. I use dictation pretty often for sending text messages, and Apple has made it even better. Here's a couple of things they've improved in dictation. In iOS 15 and before, if you were dictating along and wanted to change one word, when you tapped on the text you wanted to change, it would take you out of dictation mode and into the keyboard text entry mode. You then have to tap on the microphone again to start up dictation. While that was just a smidge tedious, dictation would lose context and assume you were starting a new sentence and it would put a leading capital on the next word you dictated. I would often stop dictation mid-sentence to fix things, and as, as a result, I'd wind up with these oddly capitalized words in the middle of a sentence, and I'd have to go back and fix those, or leave them in and look kind of dopey. They also changed the visuals and sounds when you start dictation. In iOS 15, when you tap the microphone, the entire keyboard disappears, and it shows a simulated waveform of what it's hearing. While this was a handy visual aid to confirm she could hear you, because sometimes it didn't work, we paid the price of waiting for that waveform to come up. It didn't take terribly long, but it was definitely a delay. Below the waveform was an icon of a keyboard for you to tap in order to get back out of dictation. With iOS 16, there is no animated waveform and the keyboard stays always visible. This makes sense because it has to be there if you're going to be able to make corrections midstream and then continue dictating. When you select the microphone to start dictation, that mic button becomes dark gray and that indicates to you that it's listening. In addition, at your text insertion point, you'll see a pop-up bu bubble of a microphone. The visual, along with a quiet boop sound, just like we had in iOS 15, tells you that she's listening. There's also a little X on that icon. It's like a microscopic X, but you can actually pop out of dictation using that little tiny pop-up as well. Now, using dictation on iOS 16 feels faster than on iOS 15 because of the older OS's animation. But I tested the two OS's side-by-side side on two iPhones, and even with launching the animation, both phones typed out the phrase at the exact same pace. Still, it feels faster in iOS 16. iOS 16 also provides auto-punctuation as you're dictating. By default, you'll see a period to the right of whatever you've been dictating, and if you stop, that period will automatically be inserted. But if your dictation is in the form of a question, the period will automatically change to a question mark as you are dictating. I see that as an excellent enhancement. One little thing that has bothered me about iOS dictation for a long time is when it chooses the wrong version of, of a word, of a homophone. For example, if I end a sentence with two, T-O-O, meaning also, dictation would always choose T-O instead of T-O-O. I was constantly having to correct it. Now, I suspect it was actually programmed incorrectly in Apple's library because I've had, to, I've had spell check suggest that I change T-O-O to T-O when I'm typing on my Mac. So that's why I think it's something wrong with the library. But on iOS 16, I noticed that when I ended a sentence with saying the word to, initially it incorrectly put the wrong word in, but then it changed it to the correct version, T-O-O. That made me very happy. One more thing I don't have to fix. This is also a lesson. Don't be too quick to correct dictation, because often it fixes itself by the time you finish talking. So just keep on finishing the sentence and wait and see whether it just kind of cleans things up for you and keeps you from having to go back and fix it yourself. 
Now, I'm not sure that iOS 16's dictation accuracy has gone up, but it feels more accurate, simply because I enjoy the experience even more than I did before. I do have to say I remain baffled why dictation on the Apple Watch seems to be the most reliable, with iOS dictation in the middle for accuracy, and macOS seems to be the least accurate of the three operating systems. You would think it'd be the other way around? Assuming processing power matters, but maybe it's a microphone difference? I don't know, but it always seems weird to me that I can't reasonably dictate on my Mac the way I can on my Apple Watch. Quite a few years ago, I influenced most of my friends and family to switch over to using Telegram instead of messages if they wanted to communicate with me. Pretty much everyone who wants to text with me has added Telegram to the messaging apps, with the notable exception of David Roth. He stubbornly sticks to messages. While Telegram is still my preferred platform for texting for quite a few reasons, messages took some huge leaps forward to coming closer to parity with the things I care about with Telegram. One of my favorite features in Telegram is that I can edit messages after I send them. Like everyone else, I often make typos in my messages, and while I don't seem to be plagued by bad autocorrect, it's not uncommon for the typo to obfuscate the meaning of my messages. In messages, the only thing you could do before was send another message, and the the um, the main way you tell people you want you're doing a correction is you put a star in front of the word you're correcting. In iOS 16, you can now actually edit your messages. If you tap and hold on a message, you'll see the option to edit in the pop-up menu. If you notice something amiss with a message you sent and realize that you'd rather get rid of it entirely, you can actually unsend it if you're quick enough. In the same pop-up where you see edit after tapping and holding on a message, you'll see undo send if it's not too late. According to the Apple support article about this new feature that I've linked to in the show notes, you have up to two minutes to unsend your message. That's pretty cool. If it's more than two minutes later, the option simply won't be there in the menu, so you'll know if you waited too long. Now, this sounds really cool and the edit function is great, but unsend has one big caution asterisk on it. If the person you're messaging with is on iOS or iPadOS 15.6 or earlier, macOS Monterey or earlier, or they're using SMS, this unsend feature does not unsend the message to them. It stays right there on their device. Now, you'll get a little warning when you unsend a message, but it's kind of a generic message because other than SMS, I don't see how messages could ever tell which OS the person you're texting with was using. So it says specifically, you unsent a message. Steven may still see the message on devices where the software hasn't been updated. I was testing with Steve. Anyway, the behavior of edited messages is different for those without iOS 16, but it's a little better than it is for unsent messages. If your correspondent is on one of those earlier OSs or SMS, they'll receive a second message with your updated text. I think that's a good compromise. If they are on iOS 16 or later, their message bubble will be updated to the new version of your message, but they and you will see the word edited next to it. Tapping on edited will reveal both the previous and current versions of this message. One last comment on modifying what you sent in the Messages app. There is a prominent delete button in the bottom right. This button is a lie, or at best a half-truth. Deleting a message only deletes it for you. It has no effect on your recipient's phone, no matter what OS or what version they're running. Telegram, in contrast, has a delete function where you can choose to delete just for yourself or to delete for you and the other person, and it truly does delete it on both ends. Now, messages got a lot more useful for me with this iOS 16 update, and I guess when I'm talking to David Roth, I can edit my messages. 
I'll be sticking with Telegram for everyone else until they solve the blue bubble, green bubble message bifurcation problem. This is the thing where you write to somebody with, or you include somebody green bubble with a bunch of blue bubble people and it gets split and different people get different messages. The last time I tried to text two people using messages was one blue and the other green, and the green bubble person never got the very first message I sent. It just simply never arrived. It bifurcated immediately, and that's the day that I said, okay, I'm out. I'm not using messages unless I have to talk to David Roth. I take a lot of screenshots. I use them to explain things to friends, family, and all of you. I use them to remind myself of a process I'm trying to follow. Just this week, Steve and I had never done the eSIM dance before, and we needed to figure out how to do it for the iPhone 14 Pro that has no physical SIM tray. By the way, it's super easy. Anyway, I moved mine over first, and as I did it, I screenshotted every single step I went through. When it came time for Steve to do it, I knew the steps wouldn't be available to me. Steve started the process, and I was able to just flip through the screenshots I'd saved to follow along in case he needed any help. I like screenshots so much that I decided to check in Apple Photos to see how many I've saved in photos. You can open the screenshots auto-created album to see how many you've taken and saved. I have saved 4,215 screenshots. I really don't need that. But, you know, sometimes I really do want to save my screenshots for later, like the example with helping Steve, but definitely not 4,215 times. Most of the time, I bet most people just want to take a screenshot and immediately send it to someone. We usually don't need to save them. In iOS 15 and before, you could send them without saving, but the process was as follows. Take the screenshot, hit the up arrow, hit copy, hit done, and finally hit delete. So that was four screen taps. Up arrow, copy, done, and delete. In iOS 16, it is streamlined. Now you take the screenshot hit done, and right there you'll have an option to copy and delete in one step. So you have two screen steps, I should say two screen taps, instead of four. If you take a screenshot every six months, this might not seem like an epic improvement, but I assure you it's made me very happy many times as I've created the screenshots just for this article. Now they've also added the option when you click done to save to a quick note, and that could be really handy. They don't explicitly state it, but if you save a screenshot to a quick note, it does not save it into your photo library either. So it's tap done, tap uh, quick note, and then you can see it in your quick note and do whatever editing you want to do there, and you're done. These small improvements could have a big impact because the new options will encourage all of us to delete screenshots instead of saving so many of them to our photos library. Or at least that's my hope. Now, speaking of photos, one of the problems we all seem to have is duplicate photos. There have been a lot of tools developed that will look for duplicates and help you triage them, but I've always been nervous about, is it going to work right? Is it really going to know what it's doing? It's going to go through and mass delete a bunch of my images and it makes me crazy. Well, Gary, I'll get this right yet. Gary Rosenzweig has a fantastic YouTube channel called MacMost Video. And this week, he did a short video tutorial on how Apple has given us a way to detect and remove duplicates in our photos library with iOS 16. Now, Gary doesn't just show you how to use the feature. He also explains how it works. This is important because you have the option in this deduplication to delete one of the duplicates or even triplicates, Or you can choose to merge them. So you're kind of like, wow, what is it going to do when it merges? Well, he walks you through how Apple's algorithm figures out which image to keep and what happens to data such as captions you may have added to your images when you choose to merge images. 
Now, I can't do the explanation justice, so I've put a link in the show notes to Gary's tutorial. It's really, really good. And I want you to know, Gary doesn't mess around getting started with his MacMost tutorial videos. He jumps right into the good stuff so his content is short and gives you exactly what you need to know. He's got a vast library of videos he's created, making his channel well worth following for the Apple enthusiast. Our next enhancement to iOS 16 comes from Donna from Michigan, a listener of the show. And I'm going to let her tell you her tip that she figured out. Hi, Allison and all of your loyal listeners. This is Donna from Michigan, and I wanted to just share something that I happened to notice on my new purple iPhone 14 Pro using iOS 16. Previously, you couldn't use Listen for Hey Siri along with sound recognition. For those who don't know, sound recognition is a feature that you can use if you're hard of hearing or maybe you work in a loud environment or you're just afraid you might miss some important noise happening in the background. I've got a friend with cochlear implants and three immediate family members who use hearing aids, and they're all still hard of hearing, so it was a bummer that you couldn't use these two features before. I didn't hear anyone mention that you could use both now, but I tried it, and, and you can, and it never made sense to me why you couldn't before anyway. So I'm trying it out right now with fire, siren, smoke, and glass breaking turned on, and it seems to be working okay. I initially included doorbell also, but I got way too many false alarms, so I've turned that off. I was watching TV with my mom the other day, and she had the volume turned up pretty loud. There was a police car with a siren on, and I received an alert on my watch stating that a siren had been detected. And then I was able to just hit dismiss to acknowledge it. I programmed my mom's front and side doorbells a couple years ago with different chimes so she would know which was ringing. And I'm going to try setting up a custom doorbell alert for her. It may limit me to only one, but I thought I could record the other one under custom alarm. I hope I'll be able to actually label them as front door and side door. But if not, she'll know that alarm is actually for her side door. I think I'm also going to turn on kettle for her and maybe appliances, since she doesn't always hear her washer and dryer when they chime or buzz. So these things can be found in the settings menu, and you can just go to the search bar and type in sound recognition, and they'll pop up for you. They're actually under accessibility. You'd be able to find them there. So I hope that helps some people. Um, I think it's a great feature and, and nice that you're able to use it now along with Hey Siri. Thanks for always sharing such terrific information with us, Allison. It's one of my favorite podcasts, and I always enjoy listening to you. Oh, Donna, that's so sweet. I love it. I love that you did this for us. To everybody listening, Donna sent me this tip in text, and it was really well written. And I said, oh, this is fantastic. I'd love to include it in my iOS 16 uh, exciting tiny little things that we found. And uh, and then I said, is there any chance you'd record it? And like 10 minutes later, she recorded it. She is our people. She is so fun. Anyway, I turned these things on myself. And like you, I got a lot of doorbell notifications, which was interesting. Um, I probably got six in an hour and nobody was at the door. I got some, I got a notification on door knocking when I was eating popcorn near my phone. So apparently I chew really loudly or something. So you might want to fool with these to see whether they work for you. All right, that's the end of my iOS little tiny things that I've found and Donna has found. So I'm sure we're going to continue to discover lots of cool hidden treasures in iOS 16 over time. If you want to be cool like Donna, send me your favorites and uh, maybe it's something we might have missed in the bigger, flashier announcements. Thanks again to Donna for sending hers in first. 
Above all, have fun with your phone feeling new again for no money at all. I do really hope Apple releases iPadOS 16 soon because I want these features on my iPad too, especially that duplicate photos thing. I really think that would be better on an iPad than on an iPhone. Instead of panhandling for money this week, I'd like to tell you about one of my favorite must-listen shows, the Mac Geek Gab podcast. The Mac Geek Gab is in its 17th year of providing tips, cool stuff found, and answers to your questions about anything and everything Apple. Hosts Dave Hamilton and John F. Braun take time each week to actually provide tech support to as many listeners as possible. It's crazy. They really do help a lot of people. They used to challenge the audience to learn three new things each week. Then they changed it to four, and now you have to learn five new things each week. But guess what? I always learn at least five new things, and so do David John. Now, my favorites are the quick tips contributed by the listeners and often by Dave and John themselves. It was life-changing when I heard Dave explain this one. Did you know you can partially move, I'm sorry, you can move a partially hidden window on macOS without bringing it forward by holding the command key down and then dragging? I use this tip daily and I show it to others as a party trick now. Or how about this one? I just learned from the Mac Geek app that you no longer have to shake your phone to undo. You can swipe on screen from right to left with three fingers to undo. If you want to redo, do the opposite. Swipe to, from left to right with three fingers. The Mac Geek Gab is at the top of my list as soon as the podcast gets released, so it can keep me company and let me keep learning while I'm on my, I'm on my long walks with my dog. If you use an iPhone, a Mac, an iPad, an Apple Watch, an Apple TV, or simply are a technology enthusiast, you're going to love learning more about your technology with your two new favorite geek geeks over at Mac Geek Gab. Get your questions answered and have some fun along the way. Visit MacGeekGab.com or search for MacGeekGab on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't get caught without having MacGeekGab in your rotation. Over the past decade, it's been getting hotter and hotter each summer where Steve and I live. We kept thinking, yeah, it's an aberration. It'll be cooler next year. But the weather caused by climate change is affecting us along with everyone else. We talked about getting air conditioning, but that seemed like a bad idea. To burn dead dinosaurs to cool the house that was getting too hot because of too much burning of dead dinosaurs, that just didn't make sense. So last summer, we decided that we could cool our house without making global warming worse if we installed solar panels. If you want to learn more about what we had installed and all the decisions we made, I wrote it up last July in my article entitled, Solar Comes to Casa Sheridan. In the article, I talked about our decision on whether or not to also have whole home batteries installed, you know, like a Tesla Powerwall, at the same time. At the time, I explained that because of the way our electric company works, with the laws in the state of California, the grid performs some of the functions that a battery would. During the day, we generate more energy from solar than we use, so the excess energy goes into the grid. At night, after the sun goes down, we take energy back out of the grid. If, over the course of a year, we generate the same amount of energy as we consume, the electric company doesn't charge us for anything beyond a nominal monthly fee. Now, this isn't true for everyone in every state or country, but that's how it works here and in some other places. Because of this, we could not figure out a financial justification for adding batteries to our house. The other reason you might want to add batteries, though, is to protect against power outages. Without batteries, we were not protected from power outages. However, we don't live where there are dangerous storms that take down power lines, and we're lucky enough that we're not in, a higher, uh, in the high fire danger regions of California. 
Many areas of the state have rolling brownouts for various reasons, but in general, they have not affected us. Over the past year, though, we have experienced several power outages, but there are always these one-off weird situations, like when this one woman hit a power pole with her car and she took out several city blocks around us. The outages have been minor inconveniences so far, so we really didn't see that we could justify installing batteries based on those infrequent events. So this article is how we decided to install home batteries anyway. Anyway, we, we've, we did it. So when we, you put solar on your house that is also tied to the grid, at least where we live, you cannot power your house during an outage at all, even though you've got this solar energy you're creating. To protect the safety of utility workers, the solar system is designed to automatically shut off so power can't be sent back into the grid's power lines that could kill somebody trying to fix them. This means solar power is also not available in your home during any kind of outage. By combining batteries with solar energy generation, that restriction goes away, and you can use both solar and battery power if and when the grid goes down. Now, I'm going to get into how all that works in a little bit, including one of my world-famous diagrams. But let's back up a little bit first and talk about the decisions we had to make in purchasing and installing our whole home batteries. The first decision we had to make was what brand of batteries we wanted to have installed. The two choices we had from our supplier were Enphase, which would have matched the batteries to the same brand of power inverters installed with our solar panels. That seemed like an advantage. The other option was to have Tesla Powerwalls installed. Now, you might be saying to yourself, hey, I thought Tesla would only let you have Powerwalls if you bought your solar panels from them. Well, that was true for quite a while when they were in short supply, but they've opened up a bit to some third-party solar installers. In fact, Elon Musk announced recently that they will begin to sell them direct to, to non-solar customers by the end of 2022. Now, we got lucky in that the company that installed our solar panels was already on an approved Tesla Powerwall installer list. They bought a bunch of them, so they just happened to be available to us right as we were making our decision on which batteries to buy. Now, the price was essentially the same for both brands of batteries, but they had different energy storage capacities. The Enphase batteries can store 10 kilowatt hours of energy, while the Tesla Powerwalls can store 13.5 kilowatt hours. That's 35% more. So both brands are $10,000 per battery. Now, on top of the power cost or the battery cost, if you're thinking about doing this, you also have to pay for installation, which includes wiring and installation of a smattering of other boxes that control the batteries. These include a gateway to manage the different types of power and various shutoff switches. You'll probably need to have an electrical panel or some electrical panel work done as well. Just keep that in mind when you think of the cost of whole home battery acquisition. It's not just ten thousand dollars. You got to buy all this other stuff that goes with it. Now, there were some advantages to having the battery brand match the solar panel brand with Enphase, like I said, and they do use slightly newer technology than the Tesla Powerwalls. In the end, though, the significantly larger capacity of the Powerwalls won out. Like any kind of battery, you can't run them down to zero, and having 35% more storage was a significant advantage. Steve and I are both engineers, as you know, so we figured it would be trivial for us to model our energy usage and, and, and decide how much energy we needed to store. This would tell us how many batteries we needed. Turns out to be way harder than we expected to do that because you have to make so many assumptions. A primary use case for battery, again, would be to give us power during an outage. We know how much energy we use in a typical day, having tracked it pretty closely for the last year. So let's say we want to be protected from a 24-hour outage. But how much sun was there the day before to fill that battery? Is the battery full? 
and how much sun is there going to be on the day of the power outage? If it's going to be cloudy, you'd need more. If it's going to be sunny, you don't need as much. Is the power going to go out in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day? And we did a lot of math, made a lot of equations, and we debated a lot about the various scenarios. In the end, we decided that we needed two power walls since a combined 27 kilowatt hours of stored energy would fully power our home for 24 hours during most days of average usage. I would have preferred to show you a definitive equation spreadsheet. Yeah, it would have been great with how to size batteries, but we were never able to create that. In addition to providing us with power during an outage, we also wanted to mostly eliminate our reliance on the grid on a day-to-day -day basis. Again, burning dead dinosaurs. One power wall would have helped in an outage, but two might nearly eliminate any reliance on the grid. Being able to erase such a huge part of our carbon footprint was very attractive to us. Once we'd made the decision of what to buy, the installers explained that we needed to decide what circuits we would need to go on battery backup power in case of an outage. We were told that we would have a limited number of circuits we put, could put on battery power, and we wouldn't be able to put the really high power circuits on battery backup power. The circuit for our electric oven is 240 volts at 50 amps, as is our electric vehicle charger for our Tesla cars. The low power circuits are the ones that are more like 120 volts, 15 to 20 amps. Whole home batteries have limitations on how much instantaneous current they can provide, so the electric oven and the electric vehicle charger for our cars would not be able to be powered by the battery. Now, one nice surprise was that our HVAC system could go on the battery. That's because luckily we chose a variable speed heat pump for our HVAC system. This means the AC or heater doesn't immediately slam on at full speed with a big current spike. It has a more gradual rise in current. Also, our HVAC is on a 240 volt, 40 amp circuit, which the power walls could handle. So it just kind of skimmed in under that low power limitation. Now that I've explained our battery decision and described how we split the circuits up, let's talk about the whole, how the whole system works, because it's really cool. Rather than try to explain the entire system and how it works in one giant leap, I'll take it kind of in bite-sized chunks. I'm going to give you four versions of my diagram in the show notes, building it up in pieces so as not to overwhelm anyone. I got a lot out of making this diagram because the more I worked on it, the more I understood the system. Steve and I also discovered through this process that things worked even better than we expected. That's a teaser for later. All right, the first thing to understand is the priority order of what happens to the power generated by the solar panels. During the day, the solar panels power the house. As the sun gets higher, the solar panels will generate more energy than we're actually consuming. This excess energy will be used to refill the batteries from the night before. When the battery is filled, any excess solar energy is then sent into the grid. As the sun goes down and the solar energy is insufficient to power the house, the battery begins to help out and eventually is the sole supplier of power. If the battery gets low on stored energy during the night, the grid will begin to power the home, if necessary. In the morning, the process starts all over again. Now, if it's a good sunny day in the middle of summer where the sun is as high as possible, we generate far more energy than we need. The batteries fill to 100% pretty early in the day, and we begin donating energy to the grid pretty early. Not only are we grid independent, we are adding clean energy back into the system, and that feels really good. If there's a massive heat wave across all of California with record temperatures being broken every day for a week and a half things aren't quite so rosy. We hit 104 degrees Fahrenheit last week, and we lived near the beach. It was bananas. 
We were very happy that we had put in air conditioning recently, but we could see that it dramatically slowed down how long it took for the battery to fill during the day. Because it also remained hot at night, which is very unusual for California, our battery was depleted before the night was over, and our house was unfortunately cooled from those dead dinosaurs coming from the grid. This was an extreme condition, and the weeks before and since that massive heat wave, we have avoided taking energy from the grid. And one day during the massive heat wave, the state of California put out an emergency alert to our phones, kind of like the Amber Alerts, if you know what those are. The phone vibrates and rings and you get this alarming message across your lock screen. The alert begged us to cut back our power usage because the grid was nearing its breaking point because basically everybody had their air conditioners on in the entire state. If we didn't lower our energy usage, they'd be forced to begin rolling blackouts. In a rare show of unity for the good of all, Californians immediately responded and rolling blackouts were avoided. It was such a success story, it made the national news. Now, I'd like to say we were team players and dropped our energy usage. But you know, we weren't drawing any energy from the grid when they asked us to do it. So we sat there in our cool house with smug smiles on our faces. Now that I think about it, we could have turned the temperature up and suffered a little bit so we could put even more energy into the grid. But Luckily, that did not occur to me at the time. With Tesla Powerwalls, you can view and change the algorithm for how solar, batteries, and the grid are used to power your home. It's all done through the Tesla app, the same one that controls our cars. You don't have to have Tesla cars to have the Tesla app and have Powerwalls, though. While we were deciding whether to go with Enphase or Tesla for our batteries, both our friend Jolly and our friend Marco showed us how the Tesla app explains the flow of energy from the different sources. I have to admit that the cool factor was one of the drivers in favor of Tesla for our batteries. Even though we have Enphase solar inverters, the Tesla app reports our solar energy generation exactly the same as it does for Jolly and Marco, who have Tesla uh, battery. I'm sorry, who have Tesla solar. In the Tesla app, you get an animation of the way solar, battery, and grid power flow to your home. I embedded a video of this animation in the show notes so you can see how cool it is for yourself. In the animation at the top of the screen, it shows we were generating 4.3 kilowatts of solar as of the time I took the video. Energy, represented by a pulsing green line, is shown flowing down from the solar panels towards a Tesla gateway box. Remember the gateway, that's an important box. Then you see the green pulsing line split in half, or 60-40 or whatever it happens to be, to go to the right to power the home, which at the time I, I took the video was demanding 1.3 kilowatts, with the remaining 3 kilowatts flowing into the power walls to the left to fill them back up. It also shows that the power walls were 59% full at 10.21 a.m. I told you it fills pretty quickly. So it's really fun to check this throughout the day and to see the battery filled 100% and see the excess solar start going into the grid for someone else to use as clean energy. Now, I checked this Tesla app for accessibility using VoiceOver on iOS. Much of it is accessible, but the animation area is not. Now, I get why the animation itself might not be accessible with these green flowing lines, but there's no reason you shouldn't be able to hear what the solar, the current home, solar, powerwall, and grid values are at any moment in time. I tweeted this out as an improvement suggestion to Tesla. Now, I also know a guy at Tesla in a completely different organization, and I'm going to see if I can squeeze a message through, to, through him to the right people that way. Don't count on it. They're pretty hard to communicate with, but hey, I'm trying. Now, I've described a few times how the Tesla Powerwall gets depleted after the sun goes down and then gets refilled by the sun during the day. 
You have control over how depleted the batteries get before starting to pull from the grid. If the main reason you get whole home batteries is to protect from power outages, you probably don't want your batteries to get too low overnight. In Settings Powerwall, you have some interesting options to control the algorithm for battery usage. The first is a slider to simply control how low to let your battery go. In this screenshot I provided in the show notes, we currently have it set to reserve 35% for backup and 65% to power the house. This means that if we drain it to 35% during the night, we will begin to power the house via the grid instead of the battery until the sun comes up. You also have granularity about when the power wall will power your house. In California, as well as other places in the United States, we have what are called time of use plans or TOU. Energy is dramatically less expensive during off-peak hours and very expensive more than double during the peak hours. Those peak hours are when most people come home from work and begin using appliances from 5 to 8 or 4 to 9 p.m. depending on your plan. So let's say your solar panels don't generate enough energy to both fill the battery and power the house all day long. You might want to rely on the grid during the inexpensive times of the day, but make sure you use your batteries to power the house during those super expensive 4 to 9 p.m. hours. You can tell the Tesla app which time of use plan you're on, and then if you choose time-based control, it saves enough battery to be able to prioritize battery usage during those expensive times. The second option is called self-powered. With this selected, after the sun goes down, the batteries will be used until they're depleted to the percentage you defined with the slider. We put in enough solar panels and bought two power walls so that we can use the self-powered options. And we may have to mess with this setting during the winter, say if we have a lot of bad solar production days in a row because the sun is lower or it's cloudy. Sometimes there's clouds in Southern California. It does happen. Anyway, there's another option on this screen for grid charging. Evidently in some areas, not ours, you can actually use the grid to charge up your batteries. That's the opposite of our objective, but I can see why you might want to do that if you don't have enough solar to fill your batteries. The Tesla app also has a bunch of really nifty graphs. I mean, who doesn't love a good graph, right? If you tap on energy on the main page, the app tells you how much energy you've generated so far that day. I'm looking at it, I was looking at it after a really good late summer day with no clouds, and we generated 38.7 kilowatt hours of energy. If you tap on the energy selection, you're treated to four graphs that show power consumed or produced from midnight to midnight for a given day. You can also swipe these graphs to look day by day. You can change the view for the graphs from uh, looking at a week, month, or year, or even lifetime. Actually, there's also day, of course. And at the bottom of every graph, you're invited to download your data to have even more nerdy fun. The first graph shows you the energy consumed for that time period. Below the graph, it tells you how much you consumed from your three sources, solar, powerwall, and grid. They even give you a little horizontal stacked bar chart of those three sources by percentage. The next graph is your solar generation, and below that, you can see how much went into your home, how much went into the powerwall, and how much went back to the grid. Again, there's a stacked bar chart by percentage. The third graph really confused me the first few times I looked at it. It's the powerwall discharge. It's confusing because while you're discharging energy to your home before the sun comes up and after it goes down, the graph goes above the zero line, meaning the battery was discharging. But when the sun comes up and the power wall starts to be filled by the sun, the graph inverts and it goes below zero. So it's like a double negative. It's negative discharge, also known as positive charge. This page also includes a graph of the power wall state of charge throughout the day from zero to 100%. The final graph shows how much grid power you consume during the day. 
This one can also be confusing, especially if you've been flipping back and forth with the battery discharge graph. If you consume power from the grid, the graph goes above zero, but if you shove electrons back into the grid from your solar, then it's below zero. I took screenshots of our four graphs on a sunny day, and I stacked them one above the other to help this all make sense. It really does demonstrate how the system works, because you can see the sun coming up on the solar power generation graph, and that starts to make the battery discharge graph go into the negative charging state. But around noon, you see the battery discharge graph essentially stop reporting anything at all, because it's full. You can see by the grid power consumption graph that since the battery is now full, all of that excess solar starts pumping into the grid. I truly did have trouble interpreting these graphs until I saw them stacked all together. When you look at them side by side, it doesn't give you the same idea. Now, I mentioned I gave a tease early on that we discovered that our solar system performs even better. I should say our system performs even better than we expected. Remember I explained that we couldn't put the oven and the EV charger onto the battery circuit. Remember that? We misinterpreted what that meant. We assumed that the oven and EV charger would always draw energy from the grid. Imagine our surprise and delight when we watched the energy graphs and discovered that the oven and EV charger both drew, drew from the battery. How could that be? This is when I decided to diagram the whole thing because we needed to learn how this worked. The final diagram has a lot of information on this, so I moved things to different layers so I could build it up slowly for you so as to not scare you away. The first layer shows you just the components of the system. At the top, you'll see the solar panels, and the solar combiner takes the energy from the two separate banks of panels that we have. You'll also see a cute little icon representing the grid. You'll see the main electrical panel for the oven and EV charger, and a sub-electrical panel for everything else in the home. At the bottom, we've got two Tesla power walls that act as one. The interesting part of this diagram is the little traffic cop icon in the middle. This icon represents the Tesla backup gateway. Remember I told you the gateway was the, was the uh, important thing? This is the brains of the outfit. The gateway is in charge of routing the energy from the three sources, solar, battery, and grid. So it's the thing that makes sure to use solar first to power the home, then fill the batteries, and finally to give back to the grid. The gateway also controls what happens when solar and battery are not available to power the home and brings in grid power. It has one more job, and that's to route power appropriately when the grid goes down. In the second version of the diagram that you'll see in the show notes, you can see grid power as dashed red lines. You can see the energy coming from the grid and into the main electrical panel. If there isn't enough solar or battery, power flows from the grid into the EV charger and oven when required. From the main electrical panel, you can see the dashed red lines go back into the Tesla backup gateway to ask for directions from the traffic cop. Given the appropriate directions from the gateway, not enough solar or battery, grid power will flow into the sub-electrical panel and then power the home. So far, that's pretty simple. Now let's focus on just solar and battery power, that flow layer. I decided to represent clean energy in the diagram with solid green lines. Solar and battery power are then both designated as green. At the top, we started at the, so we started the solar panels, which shows two green lines that flow into the solar combiner. The energy then goes into the Tesla backup gateway, the traffic cop. Depending on the directions from the gateway, solar energy flows into the battery to refill it as necessary and sends solar and battery power to the sub-electrical panel and then into the home. Whether the grid is up or down, this energy path will be here. If the grid is up, green energy will flow into additional paths. I decided to designate this 
if the grid is up flow with dashed green lines because it may or may not happen. If the gateway senses that the grid is up, the solar battery power is now allowed to flow to the main electrical panel to power the EV charger and oven. This is the path that surprised and delighted us. Imagine charging your electric vehicle from the sun. It's so cool. Finally, if the battery is full and there is excess solar power beyond our consumption, the gateway will send that excess energy, clean energy back into the grid. The final version of my diagram has all of the layers I've described turned on so you can see green solar and battery power flowing around along with dirty, nasty red lines representing the grid power. I also want to point out that I'd used solid and dashed lines and put words on the green and red lines because if you're colorblind, you can't, usually can't see green and red apart. That's a very, very common colorblind. So you never want to use colors like that and not have any other way to show people what you mean. So I've got dashed lines and solid lines and I've got words on all the lines. Made it a little messier that way, but that way everybody can understand the diagrams. Steve and I understand our solar battery flow so much better because I decided to try to explain it to you. The diagram was essential to our understanding. There were a lot of iterations to the diagram and even beta testing with our friends Bill and Diane to see if it conveyed the correct information. I want to thank Steve for his initial explanations to me and continued tweaks as he followed the wires on our system and studied the wiring diagram for our installer to help us get all of this right. The bottom line is that we absolutely love our new batteries. We feel really good about making our contribution to lowering greenhouse gases in the future. And finally, the irony of the story is that we paid for two 13.5 kilowatt hour batteries when we have two 75 kilowatt batteries parked in our garage. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. And I want to give many thanks to Dave and John of the Mac Geek Gab for doing the podcast swap advertisement with me this week. Did you know you can email me at allisonpodfeed.com anytime you like, like Donna did with her cool tip? If you have a question or a suggestion, just send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. If you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you can join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. Remember, just like podfeet.com slash Slack, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.